1: For exclusive podcasts and more, sign up at patreon.com slash partners in crime media.
2: I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that looks at true crime, pop culture, other podcasts, TV... And this week, a classic Rewind episode. Kevin, what are we going to be listening to?
3: I just told you what we're listening to. Oh,
2: that's right. It's the HBO (laughs) documentary, Mommy, Dead, and Dearest, a crime writers on classic.
3: I have to write down everything for you. You really
2: do. You really do. So, Kevin, remind us what this was about. Okay, this
3: was the documentary that dealt with Dee Dee and Gypsy Rose Blanchard. Yes. Yes. Dee uh, Dee was the mom, and this was a Munchausen by Proxy case where they pretended that Gypsy, uh, Gypsy Rose was um, in a wheelchair and had
2: a lot of disabilities, a lot of disabilities, a, lot of a feeding tube,
3: yeah. and all sorts of things. And then Gypsy, with the help of an internet boyfriend, killed Dee Dee. And anyway, it was it was very um, wild. It was a wild story. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I think we had a pretty good discussion about it.
2: Should we listen to that? Let's do it. All right. <laughs> Let's move on to tonight's featured conversation, shall we? The HBO documentary film, Mommy, Dead and Dearest. Mommy, Dead and Dearest tells the story of Dee Dee Blanchard. I don't want to pronounce it, but I did hear it pronounced a few different ways in the documentary. And her daughter, Gypsy Rose. It reveals one of the most devastating and crazy cases of Munchausen syndrome by proxy in modern memory. For decades, Gypsy's mother forced her to undergo countless invasive surgeries, eat through a feeding tube, regularly ingest aggressive medication, appear paralyzed. Gypsy and everyone around her was also made to believe that she was cognitively disabled. Eventually, then, with the help of her boyfriend, Gypsy ends up murdering her mother, Dee Dee, in order to escape this abuse. Now, Gypsy is currently serving 10 years in prison. She'll be up for parole after eight and a half years. And the boyfriend with which she allegedly carried out this crime, Nicholas Godejohn, is awaiting trial for first-degree murder. I want to talk about the underlying syndrome here. And, Laura, I know that you have a fascination with it, this uh, Munchausen by proxy. Can yes. you please tell us a little bit about your personal obsession with Munchausen by proxy?
4: <laughs> um, and your well, sons. You know, <laughs> no, it's not. It's not in my personal house. Um, no, I. you know, I first heard about this syndrome when I was like a brand new reporter and I was covering a case, this very bizarre case in which a woman had been her her child had been sick and it turned out that she had been feeding the child Windex in mm-hmm. its baby formula bottle and somebody like one of the cops was like off the record they think it could be Munchausen and I'm like what the heck is that so i started doing <laughs> I mean, a lot the of lollipop research and- guilds? Yeah, I know. So it's just really interesting to me these cases and how in so many of them where the the mothers or the caregivers or whoever it is is deliberately making the person in their care sick so that they can get attention for themselves. But it's just amazing to me the lengths they go to and the fact that in so many of these cases it goes undetected for so long.
2: You know, what's really interesting to me, just a little bit of background. The syndrome was named after the fictitious Baron von Munchausen, he was known as a man who fabricated stories about his life experiences for attention. The by proxy part refers to the fact that caretakers are making up the symptoms for whomever is under their care and the symptoms don't actually apply. Now, um, it's considered a form of child abuse and there is some debate as to whether or not it's a mental illness or not munchausen by proxy syndrome whether or not someone like didi it's more of a personality disorder where they are perpetuating behavior designed to get something from it now toby didi blanchard got a lot of attention and we know that she got a lot of stuff as a result of this munchausen by proxy situation that she was uh putting on her daughter she got you know, trips to Disney World, we saw a tape of that in the documentary. We saw the fact that they had a house.
1: Habitat for Humanity Hab- House. Habitat for Humanity no.
2: House that was, you know, sort of tricked out for somebody in a wheelchair. You know, we saw that they had neighbors and friends who were feeding them, caring for them, hanging out with them. Do you have an opinion? As I mean, I'm not asking you for, like, your medical opinion, but when you sort of see this kind of manifestation of it that is so extreme, this girl who is being told not to walk— do you feel like it's a mental illness? Do you feel like it's a crime? Do you feel like it's some sort of personality? What do you? What does your gut say?
5: I don't think being a mental illness and being a crime is necessarily mutually exclusive in this situation. I don't know. It's a tough one. They don't explore that relationship in a ton of depth beyond sort of what Dee Dee was doing to Gypsy. So I didn't feel like I got a sense about whether. It was the kind of thing where Dee Dee loved Gypsy and was just sort of deluded into doing whatever she was doing to make her sick, or whether and I think this was sort of hinted at by her relatives that she was just a consciousless person and was gonna basically do what she wanted regardless of what the impacts of on other people were. And I think they, they talked about she was poisoning I guess, her father's second wife. Allegedly. And her stepmother, yeah. Oh, no, she's stepmother. dead now. You
2: don't have to say allegedly, right?
5: It's Dee Dee's allegedly. dead, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Whether it happened or not, I don't know. But they referenced that as being something that they believed had happened. Clearly, she was a sociopath or something like that. My guess is the relationship with Gypsy was probably pretty complicated and some mixture of love or devotion or something like that, along with this making her sick and dependent and also drawing attention to themselves.
2: Now, Kevin, one of the things I thought was weird was that the daughter, Gypsy, as much as I think we see evidence that she was abused, I mean, I don't think there's a question about the fact that Mm -hmm. like, getting a feeding tube put into somebody who doesn't need it is a form of abuse. And But the daughter was also...
1: Part of it is kind of what you're trying to get to, right? Yes,
2: I want to get to this later. We'll talk about Gypsy's role and being maybe potentially complicit. But she did did have to play a role, and we see it. One of the most stunning scenes in the film to me is we watch a video that Gypsy made for public consumption of her throwing herself off of that porch into the snow and then dragging herself back to the porch, pretending that she couldn't walk Now, we hear Gypsy later saying that her mother was treating her this way and doing this thing and she felt compelled, but she had to participate. What do you think about that?
1: Again, it's hard to say. I mean, I I think that there is definitely, if not, you know, this uh, this abiding pressure from her mother to do X, Y and Z. There's also probably some form of accompanying mental Health issue that goes along with being the victim of Munchausen by proxy, you know you are basically a subjugated person. Mm-hmm. There is the ethical and then there's the moral and then there's the legal justifications and excuses. It's a you know her her mother's actions are such a mitigating factor, right. but is she not also legally a party to fraud? when she pretends to be in a wheelchair and accepts a gift to Disney World or something like that. It's hard, but yet we still have a great amount of sympathy. Maybe not every viewer, but I think most of us ended up having a great amount of sympathy for what Gypsy was going through.
2: Now, do you have thoughts about Munchausen by proxy? Is this something that you have ever reported on or seen or thought not about? Not personally,
1: but I have seen it. I mean, I know it's, it's a real thing. I remember. Do you remember in uh, The Sixth Sense? Yes. There was one scene, right? That, Misha
2: Barton played the little was that girl. that girl? That was Misha Barton. Wow. who Later on to be on the OC. Right. She played the little girl that was dead. Sorry, spoiler alert. Yeah, they from, show like, up like, at like the movie. wake. Yes. And
1: they find the videotape that she made of her mom like pouring something oh, into yeah. her soup, right? Yes, yeah. And that's how it helped her. So, you know, I've seen it in movies and obviously it's been in some great movies.
2: I want to talk about the production and the... Very, very, very true crime ness of this documentary. I felt like when I was watching it, it was a combination of making a murderer, very high quality reported shows where they had all the right people and all the right mm-hmm. sources, with a little bit of like investigation discovery thrown in. It felt like a little peak true crime to me in its storytelling style and its and its filmmaking and the way they connect the interviews and. Just sort of the different people we saw. Toby, are you picking up what I'm laying down on that?
5: Yeah. I Like, for the most part, it was. It, it seems like it was pretty high-quality stuff. Like, some of it did remind me of the Casey Anthony, which is, I guess, the only thing I can compare it to in the Discovery-type stuff. The picture of Dee Dee was not extremely nuanced. Right.
2: That was the weakest, like she, I think, in terms of, like, the depth, right? But that they tried. They did, they did get her parents or her, her dad.
5: Yeah, but they didn't, you know— I guess my feeling is based on everything that they said about her that reading between the lines there must have been something going on and I'm not I'm not talking about necessarily abuse or or whatever but that there's got to be something more to it than just she's evil and does terrible things. Right.
1: So it was very interesting that nobody in her family seemed to care she was dead. Nobody. Yeah.
2: <laughs> uh, that
1: and, was I, I've never seen
2: that. And I, you know what else I've never seen? a blue ass kitchen like oh the my one God. that her it almost looked like so there was this shot for our listeners who haven't yet seen the show they interviewed Didi's dad and stepmother i guess it's her or it's his dad her dad's wife i don't know if and she must, they must have been married when Dee was still alive so her dad yeah, and stepmother yeah. and they're sitting in the kitchen in their house and there's like bright blue tile on the floor and bright blue walls and bright blue cabinets and bright blue it looks like a Wes Anderson, like, you can't make it up, Chip right? and
1: Joanna would not approve.
2: <laughs> Chip and Joanna not approve. That's hgtvpodcast.com, by the way, if you want to. uh oh, you to got a podcast.
1: website and everything. All right. Laura,
2: Laura what, what did you think? I mean, I was watching this, the whole time I was watching it, all I could think of, because I, I do watch the things that we watch, and I, I know we're going to talk about on the show, with sort of an ear or an eye toward what are Toby and Laura going to think of this. <laughs> the entire time I was like, Laura Bricker is going to freaking love this.
4: Did you? The the kitchen or the show in general? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, first of all, you have to weigh in on the kitchens. I know you have thoughts about that.
4: Well, I have to tell you I wasn't paying as much attention. I was looking at their footwear during that scene. Oh yeah. <laughs> I was Me I too. was like, why is she wearing she's wearing the the wife was wearing very practical shoes. He had like socks. Anyway. But Did they not um, know I they don't. were
1: coming? Is that why they were dressed like that? <laughs>
4: well, they moved all the furniture out of the room. They obviously knew they were coming. <laughs> yeah. So, no, I I really loved this documentary because I feel like, and I've said this before, a lot of the true crime shows that we watch, I feel like we're seeing the same story told over and over. And it's not to belittle, you know, someone's life, but it's like the husband kills the wife because he's cheating on her and he wants to leave her. And it's like after a while, that's not Captivating because you've heard the story before. And this story, I was like, whoa, where is this one going next? And I actually thought this could have been longer than it was. Like it could have been broken up into a few more episodes so that they could have gone deeper into Dee Dee's psyche and her past. And... I wanted more of this one because all of the people in it were so fascinating to me. And I was just like, it was very interesting.
2: Now, let's talk a little bit about the Dee Dee Gypsy dynamic and some of the more interesting aspects that we see. This is this mother and this daughter. The documentary begins with basically the murder. Yeah. And it shows. Interesting choice.
1: We'll talk about that. I mean, I think the big shock for a lot of people would be that Gypsy Lee can walk. (laughs) <laughs> All right. I mean, that was a lot of people are like, I don't care that D.D.'s Dee dead, but God damn it. Gypsy can walk. Um, And so that gets revealed right right off the top.
2: Well, describe I, how it, for our listeners who haven't seen the documentary, just describe a little bit about how it's structured.
1: It starts off. I think we're see we're seeing the police interrogation. We don't know much about what happened other than the fact that police that, that they found conf- a dead woman. Yeah. So they confront Gypsy. Then it's sort of told that she and and her mother had been living this lie all this time about how she was supposed to be, I guess, an invalid, and but that she was she
2: cancer, and she had muscular dystrophy, and she had seizures, and she had all these other things. Right. They reveal everything right. in the first few minutes, and mm-hmm. the documentary does. They, they they reveal that Gypsy was complicit in the murder. And yeah. with their, they reveal everything.
1: Right, they don't let that that build at all to right. any sort. And you were very surprised. By I that. was surprised by that, but it wasn't necessarily a bad choice. I think some people might have gone on and started like you know the first half hour is their life and how hard their life was, and then all of a sudden someone spills the beans. But what they held back, which was good for the rest of the narrative, is this secret life. That was beyond just the fraud of the Munchausen by proxy.
2: Now, one of the most interesting aspects of this story and when we have pitched books to publishers or when you like talk about a case that may or may not be interesting for TV is who can you get to talk Mm -hmm. to you uh, they had a lot of people. They have Gypsy herself, which is extraordinary because she's in in prison for you know she ended up making a deal. They have all the prosecutors. They have the defense lawyer. Most interestingly, they have Gypsy's dad and his wife. So they have this sort of what I see as a potential alternate life that she could have lived. Because we see the man that you know, Gypsy's mom, Dee Dee, had Gypsy with, and we hear a little bit about the fact that they got together when they were very young, and they got, and you sort of see the other side of what it could have been. And I found him to be a fascinating character. Laura, Laura what did you think of Gypsy's dad and, and his wife in this documentary?
4: I, I have to tell you, I was I was really kind of surprised because he came, he was so normal and reasonable and kind and articulate, and he seemed to. Uh, grasp everything that was going on and he had this genuine sort of, you know, heartache for the fact that, like you said, had he maybe known what was happening, he could have stopped it. But I, I guess the contrast between him and Didi, you know, I looked at Didi and then I looked at him and I'm like, I just could not imagine the two of them having anything in common, aside from the fact that, you know, they must have had some fun times together to have a child, <laughs> once at least. Um, but just the contrast between the two was what kept coming back to me as I was watching this, because, you know, he was just so reasonable and down to earth. And, you know, it just didn't seem at all like somebody that would have been connected with Dee. So that that's kind of what was going through my head.
5: I have a slightly different take on him in that like he comes across as very likable and I think also the fact that he, you know, was sort of understanding of the dynamic that had happened and therefore was able to see her as a victim, probably more so than than a perpetrator.
2: Wait, you mean his daughter, not his ex it, his ex-wife?
5: Yeah, his daughter. But I I think the thing that it seems to me like he was a little bit derelict in that he's the other parent. Right. You know, even though they were away, like regardless of how estranged I was from my ex-wife or whatever, if I had a kid who was seemed to be that seriously ill, you know, I just feel like I would be more concerned about it and more involved. And it sounds like they had one meeting where she was scared of him and he was like, oh, that sucks. And then moved on with his family until, you know, this tragedy happened. So I, I sort of felt... I felt bad for him in that it's got to just come out of the blue that your daughter hasn't actually been sick, that she's being poisoned by, you know, your ex-wife for years and years and years. But it did seem to me he he went a whole bunch of years without being very involved in his daughter's seemingly terrible illness When when he expressed regret at the end. I mean, I think he was sort of owning up to that
2: you know I I felt a couple of things about that one was that I don't think the documentary did a great job explaining sort of the timeline of their breakup and how she was able to sort of leave town and estrange him that way I do think there is something to he does describe them getting together when he was very young he had no idea what he's doing and it's sort of like "Well, this is what her mom says is going on it must be what's going on But the bigger mystery for me, and I guess other people too, because some of them appear in the documentary, is how do you convince so many doctors to treat a child for illnesses Mm -hmm. you would imagine you would need like corroborating diagnoses on to do things like install a feeding tube and the surgery where they said they brought her stomach lining up and like put in her neck The idea that you could pull the wool over doctor's eyes to me adds credence to the pulling the wool over the dad's eyes. Kevin, what do you
1: think? Uh, Yeah, I was going to say I don't blame the dad for being misled if she was smart enough to mislead all these doctors. Into sort of a medical Ponzi scheme where I
2: can't get a doctor to give my kid antibiotics when I yeah to <laughs> eat right. you know yeah.
1: yeah no just uh just, just some Tylenol be good no, right it's, it's, yeah it's
2: not it's viral it's and not uh, yeah bacterial. and unfortunately th-
1: that was I think you know even less than their explanation of Dee Dee's personality the explanation for how this medical I don't know maybe malpractice is not the appropriate word but you know how doctors could have continued to have missed this and enabled it was a paragraph on the screen well, we
2: also had the doctor who actually did
1: right yeah he it- being the exception.
2: And it was brave of him because he's basically putting himself out there he, he, as to
1: why he didn't. He is, you know. I mean, I think probably like the slightly, like, you know, you could slightly admonish him by saying, "I think you are a, aren't you a required he did reporter, but he
2: put it in the report. He reported it, but he never in a medical up. report, or but did he, he put never, it in, but he in never his social. Up.
1: I mean, he was the only one that put anything together and tried to do anything medically.
5: Or that they talked to? I like the lawyer goes through and he's reading all these things and like, yeah, it's always. Per the word of the mother. Right. Right. I couldn't I could I couldn't tell if that was like, oh, well, that's like a totally legitimate way of, you know, having this be diagnosed or whether that was kind of doctor code for not too sure about this. But
2: here's the thing. If I move to a new town and I go to a new doctor and I say, my kid has cystic fibrosis mm-hmm. and the medical records are on their way, sometimes, you know, yeah. I'm getting them transferred. But I have a 20-year history of blah, 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 blah. And you say that. The doctor is going to put that in the file. And then it's documented.
5: Mm -hmm.
4: Yes.
2: Right? That's
5: why, like, again, I I, I don't want to, like, put this on the dad. Because that's clearly, he's not the problem. But he was the person who was in a position to be like, wow, they move all the freaking time. She's always sick. You know, all this stuff. And when I knew her, she was like a healthy little baby. It wasn't like a matter of being like Sherlock Holmes sitting in his study at home, but just being more more involved in the life to some extent of his daughter.
4: I mean, I don't necessarily think just the fact that she's moving all the time and that she's very sick you know that may not have registered because there is a lot of people in the population that do move a lot for financial issues and because they they're were more transient people, right yeah and I think that culturally you know if if you grew up in a poorer area where people are more transient like that it's not something that's gonna trigger a warning bell you know I'd imagine
1: it's very hard for a physician to look at a mother when you're when the child comes in in a wheelchair
2: with those giant, like, missing teeth situations. Yeah. And all those things that are happening. Uh,
1: you know, that your first instinct would be she's fibbing. Although, you know, the physical evidence was there to disprove her, I think, you know, when you, you meet a new patient and you're taking their medical history, you do take it at face value and it's, you make a stronger case when you're playing the part.
2: So here's what I think that Dee Dee did that was brilliant she divided the care among many doctors mm-hmm. many which I, I don't think is atypical it's not different it's not much different than a drug seeker frankly oh, who's yeah, like going yeah. to many different doctors and telling she had her daughter not only in a wheelchair she had a feeding tube put in so there's like some credibility built into that right like if you walk into a doctor's office and you have a feeding tube the assumption of that physician is another physician put that feeding tube in
1: yeah that I don't believe. I just do not know how that got done,
2: Laura. What yeah. do you think of That's this? That
1: elective surgery, Laura?
2: Can you get your kid antibiotics when a doctor doesn't want to give them? Am I crazy that this was like an amazing fraud that this woman was? No, able it to is.
4: Pull up? Yeah, I mean, you know, like I've had, i and we have like a great family doctor, and you know, I'll call him on the phone and say, hey, you know, we need something, and he'll be like, well, I, I really need to see you in the office, you know. <laughs> so, the feeding tube thing astounds me as well. The fact that that was actually put in, and nobody caught on to that. I mean, that's major. That's that's not like, oh, I'm going to stick some poison in her food. So she's a little sick. It's that's a pretty major undertaking. I mean, that took some work.
1: Was it ever determined how all of this medical care was paid for?
4: Probably Medicaid. I'm guessing some of it it was
1: government assistance or something like that.
2: But by the way, we also saw a scene where she was at Disney World eating mashed potatoes. And I'm like, Oh, sure. yeah. You can't eat mashed potatoes. You can't eat, like, she has a feeding tube, and she's also, it's like, it was... Oh, snap.
4: Well, the timeline was know, a little weird, I because did I didn't understand idea. when she had the feeding tube put in, because I, I there were a couple videos where she was eating. I
2: think she was eating pretty much the whole time the feeding tube was a, an, like, it's sort of an artifice thing. Now, I want to talk wow. about another character we're introduced to uh, in the film. That is Gypsy's internet boyfriend, That's Nick Godijan. I think I'm pronouncing that close enough to
1: correct. (laughs) uh, Who
2: we see being interviewed by the police, and then we also hear described by Gypsy, and then we see their internet interactions. Kevin, my impression is Nicholas Godijan is that he is a troubled young man with something that he already is sort of carrying with him. I don't want to like diagnose somebody I've never met, but uh, he strikes me as somebody maybe a little bit. On the spectrum, I
1: think that they did. Someone said that? that is autistic, uh, yeah. and
2: then also from you know circumstances that are less than ideal, and a troubled person who then actually did stab a woman to death at the behest of his internet girlfriend. What are your impressions of Godijan and what we learn about him? And does he remind it, you of anything? Yeah,
1: it actually is funny. <laughs> We're sitting there, and I said, I, I turned and said, "This guy Seth Mazelia, who is the um, the bad guy in our last book." Dark hearts. There
2: were similarities.
1: There a lot of similarities, and also some some similarities from one of our first books, Our Little Secret, both which have to do with teenage boy and girl, what their relationship, like, and what they're willing to do for each other.
2: A little correction, they're not teenagers. She's pretending to be she's a teenager.
1: Pretend, she's, right, that's weird, too. She's pretending to be a teenager. Yeah, so where they both have this fantasy world, which includes BDSM, I don't know if Gypsy really was into that or she just went along with that. They're not really not really clear. They're not really clear on that, but it is a non-conventional relationship to say the least. I do wonder though, this is, this is like one of the things like I can't get over. How does a girl who the community believes cannot get around without a wheelchair? Suddenly, able to obtain a pink wig and lingerie. <laughs> how did she? Did she just like sneak out the back, hop on a bus, go to Kmart?
2: Not to mention hundreds of dollars to bring Frederick.
1: Go to John. Yeah, I don't know how she town. paid for it. I, I'm just like
2: there were there were some holes there. There were a couple that holes in the understand. plot there. yeah. You know, one of the things that I thought about was that you know, Go to John wasn't interviewed for the film, which makes sense because he's still he's
1: on trial this spring. They said.
2: Exactly, he's still going to be on trial. But now this is where I started to to wonder. And I feel like and we'll talk about sort of the justice part of this in a minute and how I think overwhelmingly fair the prosecution was in this case compared to many other crime things we've looked at. This listening to Godijan to talk, seeing his affect, getting a sense of how he communicates and how he was communicated with by this young woman. Kind of made me start to doubt the veracity of the one hundred percent sympathetic gypsy that we had thus far in the show kind of been exposed to this baby talking victim of her mother's Munchausen by proxy we now we see a a young woman who is communicating in a very adult manner who is posing in lingerie as Kevin mentions who is. Having a guy do her bidding, getting rid of, you know, the mom, she's like pretending on her own admission that she's just being super normal that night, painting her mom's toenails and basically really puts this murder in play. That's really when I started doubting the veracity of that when I saw his affect and his kind of You can't be
1: judging his we've already capacity burned. By no, I know the affect, of, but it made
2: me wonder about her culpability and whether or not the gypsy that we had come to that point, I can make her believe is a one hundred percent pure victim. Yeah, and Laura, what do you think?
4: I agree because I I found myself thinking, you know, I was feeling very sympathetic towards her. I was thinking, oh, these are the defense cases that you know you feel like you can do something good because here's somebody in a horrible situation because of how they were treated prior to this. But then we get into this like the you know the back and forth little messages and the photos and I'm thinking how if she's been so isolated and so sick, is she so aware of all of this sex and Facebook and dating? And it just seemed to me that she was a little bit more savvy than we had been led to believe at that point. And that feeling carried on, and we'll probably talk about that as as the you know show progressed after that. But that that was the first part where I started to kind of think she seems a little bit more sly, not sly but a little more savvy than than we were led to believe.
2: Now, I know Toby, it's uncomfortable to blame Gypsy in this situation, especially given that, you know, she's been I mean, she definitely is a victim of her mom, but what do you think of that sort of disparate portrayal of her in the various parts of this documentary?
5: You know, again, I I got to sort of put on the fiction writer cap. You know, you think about her as being both Isolated, you know, she, she primarily has one person who is always there when she interacts. Like, they, they talk about how Didi was always, like, holding her hand when other people were there. Mm-hmm. Sort of intimate that maybe she was giving her messages by pressure and stuff. So, Didi is is sort of omnipresent when other people are around. Didi is the only person she's around very often. And then it kind of comes out. I mean, she mentions that when Didi Dee goes to sleep, she goes on the internet. Gypsy goes on the internet. So I think when you have a combination of this like extreme isolation and control and then when that's let off, you just go on the internet and the internet's at your fingers and that's really your other way of interacting with the world. My guess is you'd come up with some pretty weird stuff. If you you don't have a framework to interpret what you're looking at, it's not hard to find porn, even by accident, on the internet. Like you guys were talking about Seth Mesalia, What this reminded me of was Beware the Slender Slenderman, Man. yeah. Where you have, you know, these two outsiders, they're a team of two, and in Beware the Slender Man, they have that, I don't know if she was a counselor or whatever, saying, if there had been more people in this group, you wouldn't have had this sort of self-affirming or, you know, mutually affirming fantasy about this stuff. And that that, that kind of seemed to be what was going on with these two. So I I just think her upbringing and her experience was so unusual. And then in something that's, you know, it's new, you know, it's just in our time where you can be that isolated, but at the same time, be able to access so much stuff through the internet that you probably end up having a pretty strange view of the way the world works and what goes on.
2: It's funny because when I watched the movie, and I think, Laura, you had the same experience. I felt like... Most of my sympathy was going toward Gypsy and that, you know, as messed up as she was, like with the fake baby voice, which then she could sort of modulate at will. And then we see like her being very composed in her stripes. By the way, WTF with the jails and prisons that still do those big striped outfits. Like, that is so freaking weird.
5: The hamburger
1: yeah. outfit? <laughs> like, do you do the pumpkin suit or the like, hamburger. It's
2: like, I, that, the whole like 1930s vibe of like what inmates have to wear, it just kills me. And it's like, always like these Midwestern jails and prisons that seem mm-hmm. to like love the stripes, right? It's so weird. Anyway, but you see those sort of disparate people and you see how she says to the interviewers in the documentary, I haven't even told my lawyers the truth, but I'm going to tell you the truth. And here we have this lawyer that we see advocating for her, like, voraciously with the prosecutor and with her dad, like, doing these deep dives into all these records. And she admits to the cameraman and the producer in the room that she's been lying to him. And then we see this man who, yes, he had some, you know, less than conventional sexual predilections, maybe he clearly has some challenges, I think. I don't think he is as bright as Gypsy. I don't think he is quite as 100% there as other characters in the film, potentially. And I wondered, a couple of days after I watched this, how much of the murder was the result of her manipulation of him?
4: You know, I had the same same feeling. But mine was more like, I started, you know, once I, I initially watched it, You know, the first thing I was like, I'm like, God, this poor girl. Oh, my gosh. You know what she's lived through. But then uh, I I kind of thought about it. And I'm like, hmm. As I was watching how she was handling the interview in the courtroom and I was watching how she was interacting with her father when he came in for their contact visit. And the cops when they first questioned her. Right. Yeah. And, And I was listening to this and I was starting to sort of doubt her more. And I was starting to think maybe there was more going on with her than we initially realized or or more than I realized, because I was caught up in the sympathy factor there. But then I started thinking about, you know, honestly, if her, you know, main source of social contact was her mother, who, as we learned from the people, uh, you know, in her hometown was like a master manipulator, and a liar, and, you know, basically like a con woman It's not necessarily her fault. That's the experience that she's had. And that's what she's modeling herself after, which is the person that she's been around. A
2: sociopath, maybe. Like, maybe. Yeah. Because Dr. Feldman, that uh, Munchausen expert in the movie, he does say that she might have some degree of sociopathy. But he also still believes she's a victim of Munchausen by proxy. And maybe the sociopathy is a part of that, being a victim of that. It's it's complicated. You know, one of the things that happens in this movie, unlike just about every other true crime thing we've ever talked about, is we have a sympathetic prosecutors who sort of understand that this is complicated and messed up and maybe throwing 100 percent of the weight of the law against prosecuting this girl who's been a victim her in the entire two decades of her life isn't the right move. Do You think that was surprising, Kevin, to say?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that this might be an example of when the system works. I dare say because I think that while not letting Gypsy skate, uh, it does hold her accountable, but in a merciful way by giving her a not insignificant sentence. But, but, I mean, I guess th- this could be a capital crime. They don't say it, but I'm assuming that, that part of her deal is that she has to testify against her ex. I'm
2: going to be paying attention to that, just You're, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> True um, crime update coming but, your way, guys. Yeah.
1: yeah. You you saw you know both the defense attorneys and the prosecutors and sort the of cops. Go, go in with this sort of open eye that this is an unusual case. There are many mitigating circumstances in her particular case.
2: Well, I know we've talked about this a lot, but this film was very much based on an article that came out in BuzzFeed by a writer who's featured in the documentary who talks about it. I remember it being circulated and everyone saying, like, holy crap, this is the craziest thing ever. And um, I think this documentary perhaps lives up to the craziness of the case. But I'm just curious. I'll start with me because I know where Laura's going to (laughs) go. The thumbs up, thumbs down. Would you recommend to our listeners that they watch Mommy Dead and Dearest from HBO? Uh, Our listeners who enjoy true crime a freaking lootly thumbs up. This is a peak true crime in its presentation. In the absolute nuttiness of the case, there are many times in the documentary, despite all of the things that we have revealed on this show, where you will still be surprised and you will still be like, Oh, I can't believe that! And look at that kitchen floor in those old people's houses. Trust me, it's beyond <laughs> it really belief. Is blue. I think it's worth a watch. I give it a thumbs up. Laura Bricker, um, spoiler alert: I'm guessing you're going to give it a thumbs up too.
4: <laughs> I am going to give it a thumbs up, um, just because this this has all the elements that I look for in a crime story that's going to hold my interest. There's a lot of twists and turns. There's somebody that's leading kind of a double life or a secret life and hoodwinking everybody, and there's a lot of unexpected things that happen, and the dynamic is different. It's not just like a husband and a wife. It's this mother and daughter dynamic, which is something that we don't see as often.
2: What about you, Toby? What do you think about Mommy Dead and Dearest? Would you recommend to our listeners that they watch it?
5: I'm pretty conflicted. It's well made. To me, It it's just, it's too sad. I, I just found the whole thing just really kind of depressing and upsetting. And just for that very reason, I have a hard time like recommending it. So I'd give Uh, somewhere between thumbs sideways and thumbs down, but it's not really a comment on the quality of the documentary. It's more, I I just found the subject matter to be probably the most sort of sad and depressing thing that we've covered.
2: Bleak, I think is how you described it in an email to me. Bleak? Yeah. What about you, Kevin?
1: I I give it a, uh, a thumbs up. I think if you're a true crime fan, you should Pop a bag of popcorn. <laughs> uh, you know. There's a
2: lot of juicy stuff here. A
1: lot of juicy stuff. You know what it what? is?
2: It's like that episode of Little House in the Prairie where Nellie is pretending to be in the wheelchair. <laughs> oh! Which I know you can't relate to, but I hear that Laura Bricker does. Oh
1: I've my seen gosh!
4: It. I used to watch that show every single day. That, I hated Nellie. I hated her. But that
2: oh shit moment where people realize that she could walk, yes. even though I'm spoiling it right now do you not agree kevin flynn that that is a reason why people should watch this documentary? yeah
1: yeah so just so you know no one is going to push gypsy down a hill into a <laughs> pond
2: you did see that episode yeah it's a class <laughs> i
1: might have seen one my whole life and that's what it would have been what was the
2: name of the horse that laura owned that nelly basically stole from her i don't know bunny okay go ahead bunny
1: all right great <laughs> we have the we have the makings of another podcast
0: All right,
2: Kevin, that was super fun to listen to. What are we talking about next week?
3: The Yellow Car Mm -hmm. and the new comedy, true crime, true crime comedy parody satire series from Hulu, Only Murders in the Building.
2: Oh, yeah, with Steve Martin and Selena Gomez?
3: Uh, Yeah, and don't forget Martin Short.
2: Yes, can't wait to talk about that one. All right, on behalf of all of us at Crime Writers On and Partners in Crime Media, we will catch you later.
0: Is in crime, crime media. media.